Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 8. In the last episode, I covered many of the less well-known places and people found in the first two chapters of Deuteronomy. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week's subject is a place that was mentioned once in Genesis and a second time in Deuteronomy, and that's Gaza. If you pay attention to the modern regional politics of Israel, Syria, Egypt, and Jordan, this place name should be extremely familiar. And given that it's mentioned as far back as before Jacob and family journeyed to Egypt, estimated to have been around 1900 BC, and it's still in our modern world, it should come as no surprise that the history of the place will take up an entire episode. In fact, this episode required a great deal of editing to get to its present length, with all that's happened over the past more than 4,000 years. And with that, let's get started. The first mention of Gaza is found in Genesis 10, and is of a purely geographic sense, denoting part of the boundary of land occupied by the Canaanites, and included as part of the Table of Nations. It reads, And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon, in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lusha. After this, the text goes silent until Deuteronomy 2, where once again, Gaza is mentioned in a strictly geographic sense. There it reads, As for the Avum, who had lived in settlements in the vicinity of Gaza. Of course, I covered the Avum in last week's episode. After this mention, the text is silent yet again, but only until the next book, Joshua. And with that, mentions become more abundant, but typically remain as a geographic place. When the Israelites came to occupy the Promised Land, Gaza would be in the territory of the tribe of Judah. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Gaza, or as it's usually referred to in our modern world, the Gaza Strip, is a small piece of land that sits at the confluence of Egypt, Israel, and the Mediterranean Sea. The modern use of the word is for a territory that's about 25 miles long, between 4 and 8 miles wide, and totals some 140 square miles. For my metric-denominated listeners, this is about 40 kilometers long, 6 to 12 kilometers wide, and takes up 365 square kilometers. It took me a while to figure out an equivalent-sized area. The smallest U.S. state, Rhode Island, is roughly 10 times bigger. National parks of roughly the same size are not that well known, so I went to cities, though that has its own potential pitfalls. Anyway, the Gaza Strip is roughly the size, at least in terms of area, of Raleigh, North Carolina. If it were an independent country, it would be among the smallest in the world, with the most well-known smaller ones being tiny Monaco and Vatican City. Any way you look at it, very small indeed. Given its location, it should come as no surprise that the history of the region follows that of most of the places I've covered thus far. As Genesis points out, it was originally a Canaanite-controlled territory, but also, 
As their empire grew and shrank, Egypt would control it at various times. And in the middle of all this, to one degree or another, the Philistines would control. More specifically, it was originally settled sometime between about 3300 and 3000 BC. This was before the time of Abraham. The first well-known organized settlement was at a site known as Tel Asakun, which was an Egyptian outposted fortress. When this was built, it's thought that the location of the fort was right on the border between Egypt and Canaan. From here, the Egyptians and the Canaanites would begin to trade agricultural products, at least in the beginning. But, then Egypt began to focus more on sea trade from other states and empires with ports, and the importance of the fort, and therefore Gaza, fell, to the point that the Egyptians eventually abandoned it altogether. Some centuries later, likely around 2500 BC, the Canaanite economy and territory grew, an expansion that benefited Gaza. Unfortunately, and for reasons unclear, this only lasted a couple of centuries, as around 2250 BC, the region suffered some sort of economic collapse. Likely causes are drought-induced famine or disease. How this could happen so quickly should be readily clear given the present global pandemic. Following the abandonment of the Tell, the region would return to its nomadic roots with livestock herders dominating the population. The herders would move from place to place seeking water and vegetation for their flocks. Later, another Tell would rise up, this one along one of the various wadis in the region, the Wadi Gaza a place that the region would eventually be named for. As the Hyksos settled in Giza, so the Nile Delta, the Canaanites would regain control of Gaza and build a fortification at Tel Sakon. This fort was built atop a previously abandoned village. But the Hyksos would control the northern part of Egypt for only a century or so, and as they were driven off by native Egyptians, the Egyptians would push back into Gaza, driving the re-emergent Canaanites away too. And with that, the Egyptians were back. Their control was extensive to the point that they set up an administrative capital at Tel Ajul and appointed a governor for the region. Along with their control and the stability it provided, the city would become the crossroads of trade routes and that came with a bit of economic prosperity. And of course, with this wealth, rival powers sought to rule it. Rivals like the Assyrians. This is known not just from the artifacts uncovered in Gaza, but also from records found in both Assyria and Egypt. But, like I've mentioned with every regional empire thus far, nothing here is permanent. The Egyptians would control the area for about 350 years. They would lose it to the Philistines around the 12th century BC. In Philistine society, the Tel would become one of their five most powerful cities, a group known as the Pentapolis. And all of this is in the history outside of the Old Testament. Of course, and like I covered last week, inside the Old Testament, we're told that the Avil, people known as Avites, occupied at least a portion of the region. Then, and still in the Old Testament, they were driven off by the Kafirites. Researchers, 
At least some theorized the Kepharites were the ancestors of the Philistines. Later in the Old Testament, the judge Samson would be imprisoned, then die in Gaza. Saul would unite Israel, followed by King David conquering and controlling the region in the beginning of the 11th century BC. The united Israel would split in 930 BC, and Gaza would come under the northern kingdoms. Sometime after that, the prophets Amos and Zephaniah are believed to have prophesied that Gaza would be deserted. Amos is thought to have made this prophecy in the mid-8th century BC. The kingdom of Israel would fall to the Assyrians, then ruled by Tiglath-Pileser III, and followed shortly by Sargon II, with the fall of Israel occurring around 730 BC. The Assyrians gained control over Gaza with their victories. The Egyptians re-established control of the region less than a hundred years later. Like I covered in all of the episodes on Egyptian history, it was in this period that the Persians were becoming the dominant power in the region. This control surprisingly didn't include Gaza, at least not directly, and they would allow it to operate essentially as a semi-independent client state between the 6th and 4th centuries BC. Not all of the Persian rulers were happy with this arrangement, though. In 529 BC, the Persian king Cambyses I made an ultimately unsuccessful attack on Gaza. Less than a decade later, the Greeks would establish a trading post there. A trading post that would flourish to the point that in 380 BC, they were minting their own coinage. So, so successful that they had their own money. We all know who would come shortly after this, the Greek Seleucid Alexander the Great. Gaza would be the last region he would conquer on his march to Egypt, but it wasn't easy, as the victory came after a lengthy, five-month siege, a bit unusual for the great warrior. Legend has it that during the siege, all of the men of the city fought to their deaths, with the surviving women and children being taken captive. In that society, that generally meant they were enslaved. After Alexander's victory, he would march on to Egypt, with the region coming under the loose control of their allies, the Bedouins. Gaza, the name of the city at the heart of the region that shared the moniker, would become a city-state within the Seleucid Empire. Its culture would come to be dominated by Greeks, with the city becoming a center of Greek philosophy and education. About the same time, well, actually just a little later, the Petra-centered Nabataeans were arising. This group had a tenuous relationship with the Seleucid Greeks. Think of it as more of a warm and cold conflict, not ever getting too hot. The Nabataeans were traitors, traitors with a D, and would establish a port on the Mediterranean in Gaza. Their trade routes ran from the Red Sea and Petra to this port, both transiting through Gaza. The competing Hasmoneans weren't happy with this and besieged Gaza in 96 BC, a siege that lasted the better part of the year. The city's inhabitants were holding out for a rescue from the Nabataeans, a force that never arrived. While they waited, the Hasmoneans breached the city walls, killed everyone, 
and completely leveled the city. Thirty-some years later, in 63 BC, it would be incorporated into the Roman Empire under the control of Pompey Magnus. This control would last some 600 years. And this is notable as when Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus escaped Herod and fled to Egypt, they would have likely traveled through Gaza. Though, while in Gaza, they still would be in territory controlled by Herod as some three decades earlier, in 30 BC, Roman Emperor Augustus gave Herod control over the region. Herod would die in 4 BC, and at that time, Augustus would transfer the region to the Roman Syrian province. Also, as Christianity spread, and a center of the religion was established in Alexandria, Egypt, it would have likely made it to Gaza first. In fact, in the book of Acts, in chapter 8, the region is mentioned. We're told that an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you are reading? He replied, How can I? unless someone guides me, and he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. A few verses later, Philip would baptize the Ethiopian court official in what was likely a wadi located somewhere in Gaza. Back in Gaza, throughout these six centuries, trade, both overland and sea-based, would once again flourish and the economy would boom. But it wasn't a completely peaceful time. In 66 AD, Gaza was razed and burned by Jews who were rebelling against the ruling Romans. Despite this, it was rebuilt as it remained a vital trading center, a city whose importance would only increase with the impending destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, this trade would grow in importance when the Romans came to control the territory they would name Arabia Patria, denoting their control over Petra and a small portion of Arabia. This control would allow renewed trading between the region and Petra, along with the Red Sea port of Aqaba. While under Roman control, the region was ruled, at least locally, by a 500-member Senate, and the population, along with the Senate, included Philistines, Greeks, Romans, Canaanites, Phoenicians, Jews, Egyptians, Persians, and Bedouins. Such diversity is to be expected in an area where not only trade, but the Asian and African continents, along with the Arabian Peninsula, converge. So prosperous was the city that in 130 AD, a new stadium was built and was almost immediately visited by Roman Emperor Hadrian while it hosted events as diverse as wrestling, boxing, and oratorical competitions. That's right. Wrestling and boxing, right beside the debate team. Given the Texan acts, 
along with the known spread of Christianity throughout the region that occurred earlier. The first recorded, at least in the outside record, of the religion was around 250 AD by Philip the Arab. Note that the Philip spoken of in Acts is commonly referred to as Philip the Evangelist. This Philip, the Arab one, was the emperor of Rome between 244 and 249. He was born in what is today Syria, which isn't on the Arabian Peninsula, so his nickname wasn't literally correct, at least not as we think about it. But this podcast isn't about him. What's important to know is that this was before Constantine, considered the first Christian Roman emperor, and this Philip wasn't considered to be a practicing adherent, though he was sympathetic to the religion. And he aided in its spread to Gaza, though it wasn't without friction, and worse. Pagan worship remained the norm in the region, and in 299, some number of Christians were executed by a group of Romans in the city. Another persecution occurred a mere four years later. Shortly afterwards, in 310, co-emperor Maximian would have 30 Gazan Christians executed. The other co-emperor at the time was Constantine, who began his own slow personal conversion to Christianity though this had little impact on Gaza as most of the people continued to worship their pagan deities. But, over the next several decades, the region became increasingly Christian. Throughout the 4th century, the Roman Empire was falling apart, especially those parts in Europe. In 395, the empire would split between east and west, with Gaza falling into the Eastern Empire, more frequently referred to as the Byzantine Empire. Then, in 402, a decree from the Byzantine Emperor ordered all eight of the city's pagan temples destroyed, and non-Christian worship was forbidden by the government. And with this, the persecution did a 180, with pagans now on the run. Somewhat. What actually became the norm at that time was essentially everyone persecuting everyone who wasn't like them. So, the government took it a step further and had a church built atop a destroyed pagan temple. Over time, at least at that point in the history of the region, the persecution of Christians decreased dramatically, though, according to some traditional sources, the persecution continued, just not out in the open. But it wasn't only Christians in the region and town. Modern archaeologists have uncovered a 6th century synagogue that has a mosaic tile floor depicting King David, thought to have been installed in 508 AD. In the same period, the city would become a center for early Christian education, along with more secular rhetoric, parallel to its much earlier Greek academic roots. Thinking back several years and chapters in the podcast, I touched on the mosaic map of Madaba. This map was inlaid in the floor of a Byzantine church in Madaba, Jordan, around the year 600. One of the most significant pieces of information it relays to modern researchers is what and where its designers considered significant. To them, in judging by its size on the map, Gaza was the most important political and commercial center on the southern coast of the region. 
What's confounding is that on the map it's depicted rather large, but the actual ruins uncovered in the Gaza region from the same time period do not indicate the same general importance. The simplest takeaway from this is that there is much yet to be uncovered. This scenario is likely, as many of the present existing structures were likely built on top of the old city. But I need to get back to the first millennium AD history of the city. With the advent of Islam, and even before the Muslims would seize control of the city, many of the residents began to convert to the religion. This was facilitated by an influential group of Arabic traders who took up residence in the region. One of these was Umar ibn al-Khadab, who would later become the second ruler of the Islamic Caliphate. Eventually, the Islamists did seize control of the city, an event that occurred in 637, but not until after a protracted three-year siege of the city and a notable battle between the Muslims and the Byzantines, who were uncommonly allied with the city's Jewish community. When the Muslim Caliphate did win, they spared the city from destruction. Why? Gaza was the purported burial place of a long-dead merchant, who was Muhammad's great-grandfather. The Muslims did, though, convert the churches to mosques. At the same time, most of the city's residents converted to Islam. Many of those that didn't convert fled. As a result, both the Christian and Samaritan populations were drastically reduced. Those few that did remain were hit with a special tax. All wasn't peaceful, as in 796, the various Arab sects engaged in a civil war that ravaged the city, though it remained a trading hub that greatly benefited the merchant class. The fortunes of the city and region would wax and wane over the next few centuries as various Islamic rulers came and went, a situation that I've covered extensively in past episodes concerning other parts of the Middle East during this period. This cycle continued until the Crusaders arrived in 1100. When they did, they described Gaza as being in ruins and largely unoccupied. They would build a small fort on top of the highest hill, which would be occupied by the Knights Templar. They also converted many of the mosques back to churches. The European fighters would hold the city for the next half century. The 40 or so years that made up the second half of the 12th century saw control of the city go back and forth between Arab forces and Europeans. Eventually, like all of the region, coming back under Muslim control. In the next century, Mongol invaders temporarily wrested control from the caliphate, but in the end, they would regain the city and region. This would essentially mark the end of centuries of conflict, and with that, trading and economic prosperity returned. There were the usual factors in history. In the mid-14th century, the bubonic plague killed most of the residents. It would hit again in the 19th century. A flood also struck in the early 14th century. The beginning of the next century saw a swarm of locusts. All throughout, larger regional conflicts sometimes spilled over into the Gaza region and city. The Ottomans would arrive in the early 16th century and control the area for the next 200 years, 
All during this time, Egyptian culture began a slow creep into the region, which led to the Egyptians seizing the territory from the Ottomans in the early 19th century. They would lose it back to the Ottomans in 1840. Similar to what has been seen throughout the larger region, the Ottomans would maintain control through World War I. In that conflict, the Axis-allied Ottomans would defeat the British twice outside of the city. But the Brits didn't give up and finally captured the city from the Ottomans with their third try. From that point forward, the history paralleled that of the region throughout the rest of the first half of the century. In the post-World War II division of what would become the nation of Israel, the territory that included Gaza was in dispute. Then, in 1948, Egypt would seize control of Gaza in the Arab-Israeli War. After this, displaced Palestinians fled to the city, seeking refuge. Except for a short period in 1956, during the Suez Crisis, it would remain dominated by Egypt until the 1967 Six-Day War, when Israel gained control over it. Ever since then, well, really, throughout its history, control over the trading city has been in dispute. Who has legitimate claim to it? The answer to that completely depends on who you ask. Which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue working through the history of the people, places, and things found in Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Before the outro, a couple of administrative details. First, following the anniversary episode, which released a couple of weeks ago, an unbelievable number of you reached back with well wishes and expressing gratitude. So many that I couldn't reasonably respond to everyone. To those that didn't get a note back, do know that your messages did not go unnoticed and are truly appreciated. Every single one brought a smile to my face and helps to remind me that this work is truly valued. Thank you. My second note is that we are all living in a historic time. A story that we will tell our children and grandchildren years and decades from now. My unsolicited advice is to live a story you are proud to tell. Do what you can to help others, however small. Just this last week, a friend and I went to give blood. It's a small act and required less than an hour of our time. If you're healthy, it's something to consider. Send well wishes to people. Smile to that stranger on the street. And if you're wearing a mask, then they won't see your smile, so just wave. And most of all, don't cower in fear. We will get through this, and when we do, we will be stronger, and hopefully better. But we have to be intentional, as it won't happen accidentally. Finally, we are all dealing with an uptick in non-productive time at home. If you're enjoying the podcast and you know someone who might be interested in it, now's a good time to recommend it. That's it. Stay positive, stay healthy, and keep your heads up. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. 
You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.